Welcome to Shabbat Replay on Contact High. You're listening to the expert fiddling of Kalman Strauss during our Friday night service on January 14th. Kalman also composed, produced, and performed the theme music for Contact High. Last Friday, Rabbi Dina gave a rousing sermon in anticipation of MLK Day. Of course, it didn't turn out to be the relaxing weekend we were all hoping for. All of us at Mishkan stand in love and solidarity with the Beth Israel community and are keeping them in our prayers. But now, sit back, relax, and enjoy these words from Rabbi Dina on the long way to freedom. So as many of you know, I am obsessed with Trader Joe's. I insist on shopping there for my groceries, even though there are several perfectly fine grocery stores closer to me. I love everything about it. I love their food. I love the vibe. I love the people who work there. There is one thing that I do not like about Trader Joe's though, and that is the parking lot, especially the one on Lincoln, just south of Irving Park. You know, you know, that's always full. That parking lot is always full and the spots in it are so narrow that you need to like grease your car up to get into them. And I'm kind of a stress prone driver under the best of circumstances. I don't really like driving. And so every time I have to go to park in that parking lot, it totally ignites my like, oh my God, I'm going to be trapped in my spot and I'm going to be unable to safely maneuver my way out of this parking lot. Fears. So the other day I went to Trader Joe's and when I got back to my car and loaded the groceries in, I noticed that the other two cars parked on either side of me had parked with what I would call minimal respect for the yellow lines. They were like eight inches from me. I like could barely sidle in. And so the prospect of having to back my car out of this narrow spot in this crowded parking lot ignited so much panic in me that I actually seriously considered calling my partner, Zach, and asking him to drive to Trader Joe's to come back my car out of the spot for me and then drive home. And just before I was going to make the call to be like, honey, I I need you to come save me. I can't get my car out of this spot. One of the cars next to me pulled out and I was able to like signal to the person who was going to take it, like, hold on one second. And I quickly backed myself out too. There can be miracles when you believe. Like I literally just sang that to myself the whole way home. That instinct that I had of like, I can't do this. I have to call Zach to help me. It's so natural. We all want to call outwards when we feel stuck or panicked or afraid. If we knew that we could get out of tight spots, they wouldn't be so tight. And we can learn how to get out of them, but that process of learning is scary and it's hard. This week, we go on that learning journey with the Israelites in the Parsha. So after a series of miracles, the Israelites are given the green light to get out of Egypt and God leads them the long way out in order to avoid armed confrontation with any of Egypt's neighbors. God says, I think they're going to be too freaked out by any kind of conflict right now, so I'm going to take them the long way. So they make it to an encampment on the edge of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh back in Egypt is like, wait, 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 why did I let them go again? Let's go get them. So the Egyptians mount up their horses and chariots and they charge in pursuit of the Israelites. 
And the Israelites see them coming and they realize that they're trapped between the sea and a rampaging army. So the Israelites understandably panic and they cry out to Moses, who has been their guide and their miracle worker, being like, what the heck, dude? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us here to die? Don't worry, Moshe says, God's going to save us. Have faith. And then the next line in the Torah is God saying to Moshe, why are you screaming to me about this problem? Go do something yourself, which I think is sort of the God equivalent of saying, you can back out your own car. Thank you very much. So Moshe stretches out his hand using the staff that he used in Egypt to bring the plagues and a wind blows all night and clears a path through the sea. So the Israelites are saved because of this one influential actor who swoops in to save the day. They make it to freedom on someone else's terms because of someone else's actions. So Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs points out that this behavior, this I need to call my fiance to pull my car out because I can't do it myself instinct, has fundamentally changed for the Israelites by the end of the Parsha. Though we begin with this story of them needing to take the long way to freedom because they would be too freaked out by military conflict and then freezing when this army rushes towards them, the Parsha ends with a story of a major military victory on the part of the Israelites. Once they're out in the desert, the Israelite camp is attacked by the Amalekites who sneak up from behind. But in this moment of attack, what happens? Moshe says to Joshua, all right, you go take an army, you lead the people into battle. I'm going to go climb up a mountain with my magical staff. I'm going to support you. And so Joshua does, and the Israelites prevail in battle. So Rabbi Sachs asks, what happened that the Israelites could go in the space of one Parsha, in the space of really not that much time in the story, from needing to avoid battle because they wouldn't be able to handle it, to being able to fend for themselves. And he answers that this crossing the Red Sea moment for the Israelites was like an Israelite version of crossing the Rubicon, an action that once taken really can't be taken back. Yes, the Israelites needed some help to get out of Egypt, but once they're in the desert, there's no going back. Not that this is going to stop them from occasionally grumbling about it. But that moment that they cross through, that things fundamentally change, they realize that they are capable of making the changes that they need, and they kind of like it. And that's what the whole period in the desert is about, is about helping them ease into this freedom mentality, to ease out of slave mentality and into responsibility and freedom and not just having it, but actually embracing it and wanting it and wanting more. So this agency, this self-sufficiency that the Israelites grow into I think it's actually really innate to being human. It's just been beaten out of the Israelites through so many generations of oppression. Entering the desert then is a chance for them to reclaim their communal power, for them to claim power that they always had and just needed space to use. And it will be hard for them and it will take time for them to feel change, but it will happen. So on Monday, we are going to observe MLK Day, which is a chance for us to honor the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and to feel reinvigorated in his fights for civil rights and justice. MLK Day is actually the only federal holiday designated as a national day of service in which we are actually supposed to observe by going out and making a difference in the world. 
And as it happens, one of King's biggest civil rights battles of his time is back in the spotlight this week. It's the fight to ensure voting rights and access for all people, but especially for Black and brown folks who have been systematically disenfranchised for decades. So many of us have been following with much concern for several years the moves that various states have been taking to restrict voting access, things like reducing polling hours and closing polling places in predominantly Black and brown communities, in making it harder to register to vote and gerrymandering district lines to concentrate or disperse certain voters' powers. And we've been following and applauding the efforts of grassroots organizers who have been working for years, often in the face of significant pushback, to combat this infringement of basic civil rights. This week, President Biden gave a speech in Georgia calling for a change to the filibuster rules in the Senate, which would make space for the passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act which would restore and strengthen key provisions of the original 1965 Voting Rights Act that has been dismantled. Without a change to the filibuster rules, that act is otherwise unlikely to clear the Senate. Now, if that felt very complicated and convoluted to you, it does to me too. It took me a long time to try to figure out what that was about. Which is exactly why voting rights are so important. Because they help return agency to the people whose lives are most affected by public policy, meaning us. Voting allows people to make their will known collectively and to remind elected officials of our wants and needs. Voting access will not solve inequality or oppression, and it will not eradicate white supremacy. That is clear. But what it will do is begin to shift the power balance away from the few and back towards the many. And that is a fundamentally Jewish idea. Next week's Parsha, we are going to read about two moments in which the will of the people is brought to the forefront. First, at the beginning of next week's Parsha, Moshe is going to heed the counsel of his father-in-law Yitro, and he's going to set up a system of judges and magistrates to help him govern, because him doing it alone is bad. Yitro says so, Moshe says you're right, God agrees. And then later in the Parsha, when God is gearing up for revelation, Moshe is going to go to the entire Israelite encampment and he's going to say to them, do you want this? Do you want this relationship with God? And the people will answer, we will do and we will listen. God and Moshe, powerful leaders though they were, needed the agreement and buy-in of every Israelite. We see that theme become repeated throughout the Torah, throughout the Talmud, throughout Jewish history. Any system where a small number of people attempt to govern or set policy without the buy-in and agreement of the community will fail. So while we might feel overwhelmed by the inertia of the government or the obstinacy of white supremacy, we do have some mechanisms of change available to us if only we have the capacity to use and believe in them. Dr. King said it best, so I want to read you a selection from his 1957 speech, Give Us the Ballot, delivered three years after the passing of Brown versus the Board of Education. He said, Give us the ballot and we will no longer have to worry the federal government about our basic rights. Give us the ballot and we will no longer plead to the federal government for passage of an anti-lynching law 
we will, by the power of our vote, write the law on the statute books of the South and bring an end to the dastardly acts of the hooded perpetrators of violence. Give us the ballot and we will transform the salient misdeeds of bloodthirsty mobs into calculated good deeds of orderly citizens. Give us the ballot and we will fill our legislative halls with men of goodwill who will not sign a Southern manifesto because of their devotion to the manifesto of justice. Give us the ballot and we will place judges on the benches of the South who will do justly and love mercy. And we will place at the head of the Southern states governors who will, who have not felt the tang of the human, but the glow of the divine. Give us the ballot and we will quietly and nonviolently, without rancor or bitterness, implement the Supreme Court's decision of May 17th, 1954. That was the day of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. What I find so striking reading the words of this passage is that King does not claim that voting rights will make these problems disappear, right? Voting rights will not eliminate lynching. He's still expected to live in a world with racism and violence. What he wanted, what he was advocating for, was a way to fight those things, and especially a way to fight them according to the will of the people most affected by them. We will see over the next many partiot that the Israelites need to learn again and again how to have faith in themselves and in their leaders. They were disenfranchised for more than 400 years as slaves. So it makes sense that this process of stepping back into their power, of believing that things can change and that they can change them, it'll take a generation or so. So too with our country. We have failed black and brown people for so long. We have watched democracy and civil rights weaken and wither so much that we might believe it's not possible to fix, which is why we need laws that protect everyone's access to vote and so many other things. And we need to recognize that we might not get them this time around. Like the Israelites going into battle against the Amalekites, we cannot turn back and avoid this fight, even though we don't know its outcome. But we can and must make incremental change. First of all, by making sure that we ourselves vote in every election and vote early so that we show its importance. And then we can donate our time and our money to help others vote, to donate bus passes to get to the polls, to donate food and water for people who are waiting online. I know that continuing to fight a battle that it feels like we've been losing for years is such a hard prospect. And I know that continuing to believe change is possible requires a tremendous amount of faith, which is why I want to close by going back to Dr. King's words as he closed his speech 65 years ago. King knew perhaps better than anyone, the faith necessary to stay in the fight after it's knocked you down. And he closed his give us the ballot speech by exhorting those gathered as follows. Go out with that faith today. Go back to your homes in the Southland to that faith, with that faith today. Go back to Philadelphia, to New York, to 1957 Detroit and Chicago with that faith today, that the universe is on our side in the struggle. Stand up for justice. Sometimes it gets hard, but it is always difficult to get out of Egypt. For the Red Sea always stands before you with discouraging dimensions. And even after you've crossed the Red Sea, you have to move through a wilderness 
with prodigious hilltops of evil and gigantic mountains of opposition. But I say to you this afternoon, keep moving. Let nothing slow you up. Move on with dignity and honor and respectability. To King's words, to us. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Slash events, where there's also a link to donate and support. As always, we want to hear from you. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in.